friends, I have, this is going back to school for Kelly Day. Um, I'm going to show a picture on the show notes of this because I am so excited to have as guest today the, um, let's see, uh, you guys are world famous. Yeah, I'm going with world famous. The world famous <laughs> authors of Dan Simons and Chris Shabris. It's Shabris, isn't it? Shabris. Uh, no, it's Shabri, but... You know, oh, as long as they spell it right when they when they order the book, it really doesn't matter to me. Oh, I like that. Okay. Okay. That's very good. <laughs> very fancy sounding. Okay. They wrote, and this is a they wrote Nobody's Fool, why we get taken in and what we can do about it. So welcome to Fraudish. Thanks for having us on. Great to be here. We are going to start with a speed round. When I say the word fraud, Dan, what do you think of? Uh, deception, cheating. And Chris? The first word that came to mind was Bernie Madoff, to be honest. Ooh, I like that. Okay. That's two words, though. Yeah, well, it's two <laughs> words. Yeah, it's two words. And But he is kind of, I don't know, sort of synonymous. And a lot of the time with fraud these days is the modern best example. There's so many, but that was the one that popped into my head. Oh, okay. So this is off my little um, speed round. You guys are college professors. Um, do you guys know what an aptonym is? Yes. Okay. And Madoff? It's kind of an aptonym, <laughs> well, isn't it? So, yeah, an aptonym is when your name also describes your profession or your other qualities. So, yep. yes, made off with the money and all that stuff and so on. Yes. <laughs> There's a woman who stole $15 million and her name is Steel. <laughs> That was too obvious, right? <laughs> Are you going to hire someone in your finance department with the last name of Steele? No. <laughs> okay. When I say the word ethics, what do you think of Chris? Uh, well, I think of sort of ethics in research, um, like ethical research and unethical research and so on. That's the first thing that I thought of. Okay. And Dan? Yeah. I mean, just word associations, probably integrity. Okay. And then my last question, I don't know if you guys are going to have an answer on this. Who makes better embezzlers, women or men? You mean better and more effective or better and more frequent? Um, either way, as long as you qualify how you answer, either way. I, I, bet, I would bet that the higher proportion of embezzlers are male. Ooh, Just I, because I that seems to be the case for fraudsters in general, but <laughs> I would bet that women are better at getting away with it because they're probably not suspected right. as much. They're counter counter stereotypical, so they yep. probably like succeed more often. You would be right. Winner, winner. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. So let's um, have you guys each give your sort of elevator speech and how you decided to write the best book of the year. Nobody's fool. <laughs> Well, I don't think we set out to write the best book of the year, but I'm happy if people feel it that way. Um, we had written a book 12, 13 years ago now, well, 14 years ago now, um, called The Invisible Gorilla, that was based a little more closely on research we had done in our own labs. Um, but it was focused on the ways we misunderstand how our own minds work and why that matters. So how our intuitions about thinking and reasoning and memory can lead us astray. And... We had always intended to write a second book, but we were, we gathered a lot of materials and kind of were trying to piece together how it would fit together. And, you know, after after a, a lot of drafts of proposals and working through possible 
structures, we kind of realized that a lot of what we were thinking about had to do with deception more broadly. So not just how uh, we fool ourselves, but how we get fooled by others. So that was the sort of big framing that helped us organize what we what we wanted to do with this book. Yeah, well, it's great. And I heard you guys, I can't remember, I want to say behavioral grooves, but it might have been the human risk podcast, but you came into my world and you have rocked my world. Okay. Okay. And um, where are you both located and where, what is your position? So I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, where I've been since 2002. I'm a professor in the Department of Bioethics and Decision Sciences at Geisinger Research Institute, which is in central Pennsylvania. That's awesome. Everyone who listens to Fraudish knows how much I love the world of academia. And um, I'm going to start with one of my little tabs. Once in a while, we can all be fooled by something. That is how James Mattis and Elizabeth Holmes, blah, blah, blah. What a great quote. Did you guys have a hard time? Did you argue over the starting of the book? Well, I think we spent a lot of time arguing over the the first chapter, but um, I don't think there was I don't think we had really too many alternatives to that sentence, because when I when I found it, I think I found it. Um, yeah. At least, of course, in my memory, I did everything. But um, <laughs> you found that one. I have a recollection yeah. of stumbling across it um, and and thinking that it really sort of perfectly encapsulates, you know, two facts. One, it's true. We can all be fooled by by something. Um, because Mattis, who was obviously a very high achiever, a smart guy, you know, uh, on and on, um, still was tricked by by the the Theranos uh, fraud. But on the other hand, that that often we don't sort of go deeper into it than that. We say, well, well, I got fooled or, oh, well, that guy got fooled. I wouldn't get fooled like that. Or, well, something happened to me. I made a mistake. And so the rest of the book is basically going deeper. Like, why is it that once in a while we can all be fooled? And what more can we say besides oh, well, it happens to the best of us. One thing I noticed in the book, and I really like this, is you guys do very current recent frauds or, you know, breaches, whatever. But then you also pull in historical ones. And hmm. I mean, you there's so much material. Did you guys, how, like, you must have piles and piles of cases because fraud happens. So yeah. how did you pick? And I love the ones you pick. Yeah, we have a lot of outtakes. I mean, because, <laughs> you know, if you try to include all fraud up until the day the book is finished, you know, there's no way you could put that in one book, right? It's just, there's just too much. And, you know, I have Google alerts for frauds and scams and get 20 new ones a day, right? It's their variants of scams happening all the time. I think for for the book, what we focused on was the sort of common themes across all of them. And all frauds going back to the Trojan horse have similar sorts of underpinnings to them. They, they, they take advantage of the ways we think in similar sorts of ways. So really, it was just a matter of picking ones that we thought best illustrated those sort of core cognitive principles um, in each case. Um, so I, you have the Trojan horse on the cover, and I use the Trojan horse because they say that Cassandra was the first whistleblower. Did you know that story? No. <laughs> they say she was the first whistleblower. Wow. 
Yeah, because she knew the Trojan horse, but, you know, she had gotten the power of prophecy changed to no one would believe her. And Abbott even wrote a song about it. Really? <laughs> what song is that? What's what's the song called? I think it's just called Cassandra. Oh, all right. I'll have to look that, I'll yep, have to look that look one up. up. Well, oh in, 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 in an amusing connection, you mentioned that we're world famous and we do have, I think, 13 different editions of this book coming out at some point. Um, uh and one of them is coming out in Sweden, and the co-owner of the Swedish publishing house is one of the members of ABBA. So I should, at some point, if I ever get to meet the guy, I've never met him, never spoken to him, but if we ever get yeah. to meet the guy, we can ask him. Uh, we can ask him about Cassandra. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so <laughs> funny. That is so funny. So the invisible gorilla, like <laughs> I, the first time I did that, you know, <laughs> I didn't see it. <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't see it, and I consider myself to be a very observant individual. You're like half of the people who watch it. So, yeah, <laughs> so, yep. I'm just I'm just average. Um, and then also in the introduction, you have about businesses have adopted more deceptive techniques. And where do you draw the line? Well, that's a really good question. I, I'm kind of not sure exactly where the line is drawn, but it does feel like it's being pushed, like the line is being pushed. So. I'll just give you a little personal anecdote. I noticed first had this thought myself quite a while ago, maybe 15 years ago or so. I wanted to, um, I had traveled uh, abroad and somehow the, you know, the the cell phone carrier had like rung up lots of charges for me when I was overseas. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars I had no idea I was ever going to pay. I thought I was on like a recurring charge for every like 50 gigabytes or whatever it was or something like that. And I called them up and it literally took something like three or four hours, you know, to get them to rescind this, um, getting passed along from person to person and escalating and so on. And shortly after that, I read an article that suggested that, you know, some companies in certain businesses were deliberately making customer service harder to access, hoping that people would just give up. And that in a way, it was sort of part of their business model to profit from overcharges that people didn't complain about or didn't persist enough in complaining about and so on, which not only struck me as bad customer service, but sort of, you know, borderline to deliberate deception, you know, or, or at least capable of a lot of abuse. And then when we looked into it for the book, we sort of found like more examples of this. The most notorious one I can think of is the companies that basically their whole model is selling, you know, answers to students who want to cheat on things at school, like papers, test answers, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, not just like Cliff's notes, but like literally like here, turn this in. Of course, yeah. they don't sort of say that out loud, but right. that's what they're off. selling. Yeah, they, they know what as, their business model is. Yeah. yeah, their model is here's a model of a paper you could use to kind of give you an idea of what you should be writing. And it's like, no, it's it's selling papers you know, or selling yeah. answers to exams. Yeah. Well, and then one of the other sort of themes that I really got throughout the book is just to slow down. We need to slow down. Is that is that like a really good thing to do? Especially when there's a, a chance of a big consequence. Yeah. So with big decisions, often fraudsters and con artists put you under time pressure, right? And the goal of that time pressure is to increase your anxiety, to feel like you have to act now. And there, there's a reason that, you know, signs will say there's only one left, right? And if you go onto a lot of sales sites, they'll say that. Every single time, like only a handful left, order now. And it's almost never true. It's just a way of making it urgent. And a lot of the current scams, um, the call center scams, where people will call up and tell you, you know, you have to pay your, these tax fees immediately or you're going to go to jail. There's always a huge amount of time pressure 
ramping up the anxiety, making you try and act quickly. Um, and almost nothing requires that. Right? It's pretty rare that an offer is going to vanish if you don't act now. Or, And if it, if it will, you should maybe wonder why it's so necessary for the person who's selling it to do that. Um, so, yeah, slowing down... Not not succumbing to that sort of time pressure can make a big difference in avoiding risks. It gives you time to ask a couple more questions. Yeah, I would I would say one other thing about that, which is that um, sometimes you know one thing that we like to say is is you should never respond to an exploding offer. Like you're probably not making a big mistake. You're not losing a lot of value in life if you just never respond to an exploding offer. On the other hand, I think it is true that there are flash sales. There are things like that. And and you could, you know, you could gain value by responding to those. But in order to do that, I think you need to do the homework beforehand. Like you need to spend the time more beforehand to know, like, is, is the so-called sale price actually a lot lower than what they, you know, normally sell it for? If it is, then you can wait until it pops up and you can maybe, you know, profit from it that way. But you, you have to do it on one end or the other, right? You've got to make the preparation for making a quick decision or you've got to spend the time and not make a quick decision, right? It's kind of like, you know, chess players, like they can move really fast when they already know like what move they're going to make in the position, right? But if they just move really fast without ever having seen it before, they're less likely to, you know, to make a good move. And I think that's the same thing applies in a wide variety of situations. And as Dan said, it, it's, you know, in the moment, you know, uh, con artists, fraudsters, you know, don't want you to stop and think. So that's the discipline you need to develop. Um, okay, so you guys can't see this, but I see your chessboard. <laughs> and right. um, there's there's stories in the book about chess. And one of the statistics that I saw was that chess.com kicks out, what, 800 people a day? Is that? Yeah, they close 800 accounts a day. Yes, I, something like that. It, it is up and down, you know, but that's that's not an unreasonable estimate. And then you have a story about a chess player named Von Neumann. And I just hear Von before someone's name and my radar goes up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you want me to tell you about Von Neumann? Yes. Um, So, well, first of all, the real John Von Neumann was one of the pioneers of computer science and uh, economics and game theory and, and all kinds of important mathematical, you know, fields of the 20th century. Um, and uh, so it was kind of ironic that this guy entered this chess tournament in Philadelphia in 1993 named John von Neumann, exactly the same name as the famous scientist. I mean, this probably guy would have won his a real name. prize. Huh? Yeah, probably yeah, was not his real name. Not his real <laughs> name. Like, nobody in retrospect yeah. thinks it was his real name. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, but nobody really noticed, like, because most people wandering around at chess tournaments don't know who John von Neumann was. or They wouldn't make the connection anyhow. But when they started to make the connection was after a few games when this guy was um, playing at an extremely high level for someone who was an unrated, unknown player entering his first chess tournament ever. Um, So uh, either, you know, he was some kind of like chess master in disguise or grandmaster in disguise or something like that. Um, Or the other alternative hypothesis was he was getting help somehow during the games um, and he had this his hairstyle had these had these dreadlocks. So it was possible that he was maybe concealing some kind of, you know, radio piece in his in his ear or something like that and, and getting moves from elsewhere. And uh, after a while, um, his play became more bizarre, like he would just stop playing for 40 minutes at a time and do nothing, even in a position where there's only one obvious move or something like that, that any any serious player would would play right away. 
Uh, and people notice things like some some mysterious person would appear and like look at the board and then walk away, you know. And so gradually it was deduced that this guy was probably cheating by getting moves from someone else. Probably that someone else was assisted by a computer. That was the you know main hypothesis. Um, and he actually scored enough points to win a prize. Um, and before awarding the prize, the director of the whole tournament, um, himself not a bad chess player, decided to ask him a question. Um, and instead of saying like, did you cheat or anything like that? He just said, okay, here's a very simple chess position. You know, it's checkmate in two moves. Just show me how you would do it. And the guy refused to do it. It's, it's something that like a five-year-old who learned how to play chess, like, you know, a month ago would be able to do. Um, and he just refused to do it. And he, he left the room and never collected his prize. Uh, and we sort of use that story as an example, a, of sort of some interesting cheating, you know, drama, but, but more importantly, that, um, sometimes like a critical question or two, you know, can help you differentiate a situation of fraud from, from, a, a, a from a, nor, you know, from a, something that's on the up and up. It's a, it's a good general principle for learning, right? If, if you can't answer questions about what you are, are doing, that means you don't really understand it, right? So he recognized that if he couldn't solve a mate in two, he probably doesn't really understand how to play chess at the level he was playing in the same way that if a student can't really generate the answer to a problem on an exam and explain why it's the right answer, they probably don't understand it. It just looks familiar and they kind of recognize it. Or they might have cheated. Or they might have cheated. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. I want to talk about the possibility grid. I love this because, again, so simple. Yeah. So the idea of the possibility grid is that you have to think about information that's not right in front of you. And we have this tendency to focus only on the information we're given and not think about the other information that we actually need in order to make a good decision. So, for example, if you go to the go to the bookstore and go to the business section, a lot of the books are going to be um, biographies of successful CEOs. And they'll talk about all the things those people did in their past and will claim that those are the things that led to their success. So you should emulate them. You should do what they did. But you have to think about when you look at a book like that, um, the information you don't have. All you have are their stories of their past and their success. But you don't know how many people tried exactly the same things and failed miserably or how many people succeeded with totally different strategies or how many people did different strategies and failed. So you don't know anything about the rate of success for those strategies. It might turn out that those were terrible things to do and that this person just was really, really lucky. Right. And we have this tendency to assume that whatever happened in the past caused whatever happened now, but often there's a lot of luck involved in success and thinking through the possibility grid. The possibility grid is basically laying out what led to what what was successful, what failed, and what uh, what factors were associated with that. And in order to figure that out, you have to think about not just the the positive success stories and the hits. You also have to think about the things that didn't happen. So a stock picker who picks a couple of stocks successfully and tells you about it isn't telling you about the stocks they failed to pick that also did great. And they're also not telling you about the stocks that they picked that did terribly. Right. Right. As an investigator, I'm always looking for what's missing. Like, what aren't they saying? What document don't we have that could yeah. prove or disprove? So it's it's kind of and and you even have it in here. And I don't because I have so many tabs. Um, someone says, what else? And yeah. I finished my interviews with, is there anything I haven't asked you? 
that you'd like to tell me. But what else is a much easier way to say it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me more? Or can you tell me about other things? And right. There are things you can ask, you know, experts too, if you're interviewing experts, right? So this is something that I've seen a lot of journalists do where they'll, they'll interview an expert and they'll ask them a whole bunch of questions. And what they won't ask is who would disagree with what you're saying? Or why might somebody disagree with what you're saying? Because a con artist or not as experts are not going to be con artists most of the time, but um, a con artist is going to give you exactly the information they want you to have and not the information they don't want you to have. An expert is going to give you their perspective on things. And that might not be universal or consensus. And if you ask them, hey, what are you not telling me? What would other people argue about? You might get more information. You might get a better insight into the reality. Well, and you also have in here the Bessemer Venture Partner, their anti-portfolio. I love that. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, sure. Um, so uh, I came. I think we came across this quite a while ago, and we're, we're really waiting for a point when we could when we could talk about it. And it's it's a great example here because if uh, if you ever go and look at the you know uh, venture capital industry. All the all the all the funds will list all their great successful investments on on the homepage. You know, we invested in Apple, we invested in uh, Airbnb, we invested in Google. You know, and so on. Um, but what Bessemer does in addition is um, they list companies that they did not invest in, but they had the opportunity to invest in, and that became massive successes. So Bessemer has this this list of historical examples. I think it goes back as far as FedEx. Like they could have invested in FedEx and in the seventies or something, and and they you know thought it was a bad idea. And they even include like sort of some of the notes, um, you know, or a note from the investment, like why they turned it down, uh, you know. And I there some of them are quite funny, you know. Obviously they're they're made to, they're made they're made to be a bit entertaining, but I think they reflect some um, some reality. And and what it does is um, it, in their case. Um, uh, well, from a marketing point of view, it kind of differentiates them and makes them look a little quirky. But I think from a decision-making point of view and an avoiding deceiving yourself point of view to remind yourself that your track record is not as good as you think it is. Um, and, and it, uh, you know, for all your successes, like there are things that you failed to get that you tried to get, um, uh, things that were, you know, uh, 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 offered to you, you know, that you turned down and, and so on. Like that's a much more complete picture of, your successes and failures. And it's a, it's a more fair view to the rest of the world too. Um, you know, uh, it, it fights against the idea that sort of Dan alluded to that, like even experts, you know, they're trying to present you the information that casts, you know, their ideas, them in the most favorable light. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that, you know, we need to develop these mechanisms to, to try to avoid being, being, you know, taken in, um, by, uh, by that kind of pattern of information. Yeah. Um, I, I love that. I'll put it in the show notes also. Another thing that like um, uh, stuck out to me was Canon Australia and the six photos. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it was, it was actually an advertisement, um, but it was a, it was a really neat, uh, they, they put together a really neat film. Um, and the idea is pretty simple that depending on the information you have, that colors the way you interpret what you see, right? So if you get partial information, you'll interpret it very differently. So the, the, the sort of stunt was they had a one person uh, and six photographers, one actor and six photographers, and each photographer was given a different description of this person. So one person might be told, one photographer might be told that he's, you know, a millionaire, right? Another person might to be told that he just got out of prison. Um, and they have really diverse representations. And their, their task is just to take a portrait of the person. And of course, 
the way they take the portrait is designed to reveal those aspects of what of the person that they've been told about. So they end up coming up with completely different looking portraits of the same person because they're framing it in such a way that it fits that expectation. So um, we, we often will interpret the world in a way that's consistent with what we've been told, with what the, the way we think, and we expect something of that character to come out and what we see. So it, it plays into our tendency to you know, make things fit our expectations and not question them quite as much. Well, and this kind of goes to, um, you know, I don't, you guys probably don't know, I was former federal law enforcement officer and I arrested bad guys, money launderers, drug dealers, pedophiles. And then when I go to the local sheriff's office, I'm the fraud analyst doing embezzlement cases and they look like me. But, and it changed my world. And there's a whole article in Crime Reads about how Ted Bundy, Bernie Madoff, we, they used their, I'm going to say normalcy Mm -hmm. to commit their crimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I think Madoff exploited the fact that, you know, this, this expectation principle that Dan has just been talking about, he in many ways was the guy that you least expected to be, you know, to be committing fraud. In fact, he was a guy you expected to be like the safest place to put your money, given his connections to philanthropies, to the financial industry in New York City, given his age, his appearance even. Um, you know, uh, he looks like a wise old, you know, man. I mean, not, not you know, old old at the end, you know, but he, you know, he, uh, so, and it's not just um, like looks, right, that, that, that determine these expectations that um, in the, Canon Australia, you know, photography story, it was just a small little backstory changed everything. And and what's so shocking about that one is that these are portrait photographers. It's not like these were artists like painting in different styles or something like that. The guy was wearing the same clothes. You know, it was the same room, but it was just a, a couple of sentences that completely changed the way the images looked at the end. And, and that's for something as objective as photography. Then you get into something as subjective as like your decision making on, you know, whether you think you should invest with someone or trust them on something, you know, and and so on. The potential for the expectations to control the outcome really magnifies. Well, and we spend so much money on, let's say, burglar alarms and security systems. And realistically, we're going to be ripped off by someone inside your building, inside your home. Yeah, well, certainly in a business context. Yeah, I mean, that it's insider threats are much bigger than the next year, external threats a lot of the time. Yeah. But that's partly because somebody who's in a position inside on the inside already knows what they need to know in order to, to steal if they're going to, whereas somebody or on the outside has to work their way in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or there's a manipulation of insiders by outsiders. Right. right. So like Which in a lot of common. The frauds, yeah. like, yeah, like business email compromise or whatever. Right. You sort of like trick insiders into doing things that will then, you know, give information to out, you know, to outsiders. Um, uh, is another common pattern, right? So did you guys follow the FTX fraud at all? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> what? I, I want to hear your opinions on it. Uh, well, so we did manage to sneak it into the book because it was all unfolding after we had finished the first draft even and sent it in. So we, we sort of tried to, to stick a little bit in and see how it, how our framework applied to it. Um, but, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about cases like that is, um, at its core, it was very simple, um, at least my understanding of it. Um, they said, you know, send your money here and we will put it in segregated 
accounts and you will always have, you know, ownership of it and so on. And in fact, they just did not do that at all. Um, and, you know, what exact what laws exactly they were violating? And so, I mean, that's for the, the courts and everything to sort out. But it, it was sort of fundamentally what I might call sort of a truth bias fraud. Like they just told some something to people. People accepted that it was true and they, you know, sent their money in. But like all these complex cases, a lot of the other principles we talk about were involved, you know, were involved here as well. Um, one thing I thought was interesting is if you look back at the history of FTX and Alameda Research, which was the sister company that was entwined with them. Um, Alameda Research used to pitch investors by saying, look, literally, I'm not making this up. They they said something like, look, we've, we've gone up the last four months. So we have a consistent track record of success. Um, you know, so they're exploiting people's sort of taste for consistency. Like, oh, I, I want an investment that keeps on consistently going up, which is what Madoff did, of course, although it was consistently over years, you know, and every month for years. Yeah, for crypto, maybe four months, you know, is all you need. Um, so people's <laughs> lack of appreciation of randomness, you know, and noise, um, their taste for consistency um, and, and many other, you know, yeah. and, and many other elements that we talk about in the book were involved in. And that you, you can't get like a billion dollar fraud, you know, without a lot of things going your way or exploiting a lot of vulnerabilities, yeah. um, you know, in our in our in our cognition. Even advertising using celebrities, right? I mean, it's appealing yeah. to that sort of sense of familiarity and trust of people who seem familiar to you, even if you don't know them personally or yeah. don't know what stake they had in it. Yeah. By the way, since this is a casual conversation, I couldn't help noticing uh, while watching the Super Bowl that Tom Brady, who had done so well pitching FTX a couple of Super Bowls ago, is now pitching sports uh, uh, sports gambling as well. So he's definitely a face, I think. I think what that tells us is two things. One, maybe he doesn't select his you know, his, his sponsors, all that, all that, all that, you know, discerningly, but apparently despite the FTX thing, he's still regarded as a, a good association for, you know, somewhat dubious financial businesses, you know, to, to have. Now I'm not saying these gambling businesses are illegal or anything like that, but most of the time you, you're not advised to put your money into sports betting if you want to actually yeah. preserve your capital. Right. Um, so uh, interesting that like his associating mm -hmm. with him is, is, is so powerful, you know, um, uh, for that, um, for that kind of business. So I, there's, um, Michael Lewis's book going infinite. And then have, have you guys read number go up by Zeke Fox? I haven't. I, I've read Michael Lewis's book and I also read the book by um, Ben McKenzie and, and the, the journalist whose name escapes me about the crypto industry, but I haven't read the number go up yet. Okay. So number go up is great. And I read it before I actually um, read Michael Lewis and I love Michael Lewis. One of the things that I think about when I read Michael Lewis's book is um, when John Ray came in and the former employees wanted to talk with him and he was so dismissive of them. And I think it was because his bias towards young, you know, techies, it it really upset me. I, I was just like, how dare you not listen to these people? These people were the ones who were inside. But I think he had a really strong bias against them. I did notice that in the um, in the story that he did seem to come into the the job of being the bankruptcy bankruptcy CEO of FTX um, or trustee or whatever you know whatever. I think he was actually sort of the CEO as well as the bankruptcy trustee. Um, with a lot of preconceptions about what was going on in, in the business. That was one thing that 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 was pretty clear. And 
I don't know if he could, you know, if they could have recovered more or, you know, done, you know, done, done a better job. But that's another example. I think another illustration, perhaps, of expectations guiding the way we perceive things. And maybe he saw the situation, you know, differently from from the optimal from the optimal way of seeing it. I, I mean, by the way, I thought Michael Lewis got too many too many knocks for that book. I thought it was very good. Because it's not meant to be, you know, this is my own personal opinion. It's not meant to be an objective examination of a crime. It's it's meant to be, um, uh, you know, sort of a portrait of a guy, you know, who ultimately, you know, did commit crimes according to, you know, according to, um, according to, you know, federal federal jury. Um, but it, it was, I thought, interesting, you know, portrait of how of how a, a you know, how a particular fraudster actually actually thought and it was interesting. It was not what you expected, right? Well, yeah, I, I couldn't understand why he got such guff for it. But then I was talking to my son and he's like, well, did you see the 60 Minutes interview? And I, I hadn't. Um, but one thing that is interesting, and I guess you guys are going to know, I have a bias. Lawyers are net negative to this world at many times. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's the whole thing in the FTX and John Ray and Sullivan and Cromwell making so much money off of it. And that goes to the where businesses are. Where's that line? Um, sort of with conflicts of interest. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, that, I don't know. I, I, I can't say anything about Sullivan and Cromwell and John Ray and so on. But but conflict of interest is definitely another line that I think can get pushed quite a bit. Like it's and it's not just financial. I think we often focus too much on financial conflicts of interest, like in in science, for example, in research, we have what are sometimes called intellectual conflicts of interest, where you want so much for your own theory, you know, to be true that it really biases the way you evaluate evidence or other people's work or something. Dan can probably, you know, say more oh, yeah. from experience on that. You have you have whole subfields that have kind of divided themselves and, and actually sometimes will go form their own journals because they so disagree with each other's theories that they only want to publish in outlets that will review from their perspective. And it leads to these sort of dysfunctional fields where People can't even kind of agree on what the facts are um, and agree on what the evidence is because they're they're so strongly held views that they just kind of keep pushing the same idea. Right. Yeah. Um, conflicts of interest. Yeah. Everyone goes to the financial. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, that again, that's kind of the lazy place to go and you need to slow down and see else. Um uh, so you have sort of um, the four habits you want to talk about, like maybe uh, Dan, you do, too. And Chris, you do, too. Sure. Um, Chris, do you want to start with like consistency, familiarity? And I'll do the last two. Uh, well, those go those. So maybe we might need to start this answer over because those are in the hooks. So that, yeah. Do you want the hooks or the habits? Um, yeah. So I think I, I think um, Kelly was asking about the habits. Oh, so. You're asking about habits. OK. Um, Either one. You could do both. Sure. I mean, we've, we've, already, we've already talked a little bit about them. So I'll, I'll start in. So we, we've already talked a little bit about prediction, which is basically our expectations, um, where we, we have a tendency not to question things that fit what we're looking for um, as much as things that don't. Right? We're, we're pretty good at shooting down arguments that we strongly disagree with. And we don't always see the holes in the arguments that we do agree with. And that's I think one of the big sources of the spread of unintentional spread of misinformation and disinformation online is that you get something that meets your worldview. You're not as likely to dig into it and say, is that really true before you pass it along? And of course, those looking to have things spread will send, send they'll target their messages to people who are likely to pass it along without crit thinking critically about it. Um, so prediction is about expectations and 
in our tendency not to question enough when things do fit what we want. Um, focus is something we've also talked a little bit about. We tend to kind of really emphasize and think about most the information that's right in front of us. And we tend not to take a step back and saying, what am I missing? So that that's where the possibility grid and things like that come in. That We just don't take that step of saying, is there some reason why this person is offering me this great sale price on this, you know, bicycle or piece of art or whatever, you know, is there, is there a reason why it's too good to be true or is it too good to be true? Even asking that is something that we don't think to do when we're really focused in on what somebody's telling us. And a lot of big cons and deception really keep you focused on what the con artist wants you to see and not what they don't want you to see. Um, so those, those be the first two that we talk about. And then, um, Chris, do you want to do the other two? Yeah. So the other two uh, habits that we talk about, and we should emphasize that these are like, these are normally like very useful ways to behave. They really mm -hmm. simplify, you know, our operating in the world and, and enable us to go at the necessary speed through life. Um, you know, um, however, uh, you know, they do get exploited by people. And, and one interesting one is, is commitment. So the habit we call commitment, which is basically to um, to, to treat certain assumptions that we make as though they are sort of absolute truths that we never question them. Like once once they become a commitment, then we don't think to go back and question them, maybe until it's too late. You know, so and we do a forensic you know, audit of like, what were we thinking? Uh, but usually when, you know, in everyday life, we don't get to that point of of um, of that. So, for example, um, I mean, one of the most simple ones that I think is interesting is is the 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 assumption that the people you're dealing with are not criminals. Um, and so we came across a number of cases where people who had been convicted or found civilly liable for fraud or deception or some related kind of crime in the past were then engaged in another one. And seemingly the people they were working with never thought to check their records, um, which is a bit of an antisocial thing to do, especially if you do it by asking them, have you ever been convicted of anything? But in one example, um, the um, a museum in, in Orlando, Florida, mounted a huge exhibition of Jean-Michel Basquiat paintings, which had been newly rediscovered and, and you know, offered to the museum for an exhibit. And it turned out a lot of the people involved in, you know, d discovering the, the paintings, you know, consigning the, the museum paintings. and so on. <laughs> yes. The, you know, make had, you know, various um let's say flaws in their background check that, you know, if they were uncovered, then they were neglected or perhaps weren't even uncovered. So if you go in with the idea that, you know, I'm dealing with legitimate people and you never go back to question that commitment, you know, then you can you can justify a lot of other things down the line that, you know, that that you shouldn't if you're just assuming that you're dealing with um, you're, you're dealing with um, uh, legitimate people. And then the other one is this habit we call efficiency, which is sort of precisely the tendency to sort of proceed based on the information we have, rather than slowing down and trying to gain more information, especially by asking questions. And I think we sort of emphasize the idea of asking questions because asking questions is sort of a very explicit information gathering mechanism. But you can also ask questions implicitly just by doing some more research, by, you know, waiting and, you know, seeing, you know, seeing what develops and uh, and and so on. And often when you do ask questions, you find you get these sort of evasive answers, which should be signals that something is is not right. Or you get these sort of vague answers, which, you know, should tell you to actually dig more. Like if anyone says we did our due diligence, that to me doesn't really mean anything anymore. Like it may be that at one time in some industries there were actual standards for that. But now it's just a phrase, you know, that 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 says 
nothing to see here. Let's go. Let's make the deal. Um, uh, or at least in too many cases, it does. Yeah. Right. So you've got to be alert what the answers are yeah. like. Yeah. Saying somebody saying we're being transparent tells you that they're not, because if you have to say that you're being transparent, that means you haven't shown everybody what you're doing. Right. So I, I almost always when somebody says we're being really transparent about this, they're not. Right. And that's a case to dig more because they probably are hiding things. Yeah. yeah. Or or do they actually answer the question you ask or do they answer a slightly different question that, you know, they can give you a good answer to as opposed to the question you actually ask, which politicians, of course, do all the time. Right. But, you know, you don't want that to be happening when you're like making a deal to like, you know, buy a painting or invest your, you know, in, in, invest yeah. your money or or hire whatever. somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I was get, you have a section in about the politicians and I like to call a lot when lawyers do it, the word salads. Like it's just a word salad, and and now, sometimes they'll salad. give a really coherent answer to a different question, and by the time they finish their answer, you've forgotten what the question was. So it all sounds great. It's a standard debate tactic that you know they'll pivot. They always talk about it as a pivot. So they'll give some nonsense general verbiage before they answer the question, then they'll switch to something totally different, right? And well, if and they're good at it, they make it not obvious. Yeah. Smooth. Yeah, yeah. If they're smooth. And I mean, fraudsters are smooth, you, you know, ex with the exception, I don't think SBF was very smooth. It's just <laughs> there's going to be so many case studies about him not being smooth. And I kind of joke that the reason he ended up doing this was because he had two lawyers for parents. So, you know, <laughs> I would um, say he was I mean, I would say that that he was smooth in a way like I think he he exhibited you know, a certain kind of fluency with technology and with, you know, a lot of terminology that that people didn't know well enough that they sort of assumed that he knew what he was talking about. And um, I'm still a little bit unclear as to exactly how perfectly he understood all this stuff or whether he was operating at sort of such a high level that, you know, it sort of didn't really matter. Um, but that was an interesting that's an interesting case for that reason, I think, because here you were dealing with such a new technology and area of finance that a lot of the people they were getting money from didn't really understand it at all. And he may have sounded like a, you know, a guy who was really on top of things and he was smooth in that way, I would say. But even his appearance, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say no woman showing up in a caftan and her hair, you know, all different ways could have gotten away with it. Like but he fit the, no one... he sort of fit the tech geek, yeah. you know, aesthetic and, yeah. yeah. But again, expectations, yeah. expectations, right? Like I might be less likely to give my money to a guy talking a lot of tech stuff about crypto if he was in a suit and tie, like than if he was in a T-shirt and shorts. Right. So it, I think the expectations in the in the situation really he, he fit somehow by accident, maybe or by 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 design or both. Well, and I, my my financial advisor changed teams or got a new team and I, there was a financial advisor on the East Coast who had stolen a bunch of money and it showed everything that this guy bought. So I called up my new financial advisor and I was like, hey, Kate, um, what kind of car do you drive? And she's like, hardly knows me. She's like, why are you asking this question? I'm like, so I send her the story and I was like, what kind of car do you drive? She's like an F-150 because it's the only car that will fit my two Great Danes crates in it. And I was like, okay, I'll keep my money with you. <laughs> if she would have told me that she drove a Lambo or even a Range Rover, I would have said, yeah, I don't know about this. <laughs> um, I know you guys are busy. I could talk for hours with you, but I kind of want to close on one thing. And it's, it's not really in your book, but like, 
artificial intelligence. How I am sure you guys have talked about this and maybe for your next book, how it's going to affect all of this. I can start with that. I think there are a few contexts in which it's going to cause huge problems. So one of the most common scams right now is the, the grandparent scam where uh, a relative, typically older relative, will get a call from somebody claiming to be their grandkid or a nephew or somebody who they're connected to and claims to be in trouble in some way. They were in a car accident. They need money to get out of, get bailed out. They need, you know, help paying for a lawyer, but they don't want their family to know. So it has to be secret. So there's this whole sort of script to these that leads to people who are in a position to help and want to help their their relatives transferring huge amounts of money. And it's a very effective scam. It's part of the call center scam. So it's a targeted scam on a massive international global crime scale. It's very hard to stop. Um, there have been some reports, and I don't know whether they're actually true or not, um, that some of the scammers are now using voice cloning of the kids. I haven't actually seen a whole lot of compelling evidence that that's true, um, but I'm not sure it needs to be. Right? So if you call up a grandparent and say, hey, grandma, do you know who this is? And then the grandparent guesses, then immediately from then on, it sounds just like that person, right? Because now they now it fits their expectations. So whether or not it's being used yet, it's going to be. We're not far off from pretty effective voice cloning. Um, so I think that's going to be a big issue. And the, the the best way to prevent that is to prevent it in advance. So my family has a family passcode. Um, and we've told it to grandparents, we've told it to other relatives. And the first thing you're supposed to ask is when you get that sort of a call, it seems like it's an urgent, panicked situation is what's the passcode. And if they don't respond correctly, it's a scam. In the same way that we all used to handle, you know, the fear of strangers picking you up from school. Um, you had a code that was a family code that they would know if they were supposed to be picking you up. Um, so I think that's one of the steps. The other context in which I think it's going to be really interesting is the sort of long, uh, long setup scams like the advanced fee scams. So um, the, the classic old version of this is the Nigerian prince email where you somebody claims to have a have a vast fortune, but they need your help and some money to release it. Uh, and then you'll get a big cut of it. And those scams work only by selecting the people who are most likely to give money. So most of us see that email and it, it's deleted. If we see it at all, it's deleted uh, immediately. But the person who responds to that is somebody they try and reel in, and they'll often take a long time to do that. And it's all a scripted process. And again, it's a big organized center that runs these sorts of things. But if you can offload some of that to large language models, then your effort for reeling people in goes down dramatically. So the scammers can make it more profitable. The flip side of that, the optimistic side of that is that um, the potential victims can take up all their time by doing the same thing in reverse. So they have a large language model interact with the scammers and take up their time. So we might already have some of this where you basically have two large language models having this long interaction with each other where one's trying to get, you know, <laughs> trying to get you to donate money. And the other's trying to convince you that they're going to and nobody's ever no humans are in the loop. That That's kind of an ideal world because then it might cut that broad down. <laughs> It's, it's an awesome. ideal world, except for like all the, you know, all, all the processing. climate emissions that are caused by all those computers yeah. talking to trying to scam each other like all day yeah. long or whatever, you know, yeah. um, I, I, I'm looking forward to the time 
I've been getting into spy fiction lately, so I'm looking forward to the time when we all have these elaborate like phrases we use, you know, like I hear yeah. the weather is lovely in Dusseldorf today, you know, <laughs> and the other person is supposed to say, yes, but I enjoy Barcelona more, you know, and you go on for a light and then, you know, you're talking to the real person or something like that. Um, I think the other yeah. there's another dimension of AI and scams, which is that I think um, AI due to the um, due to the amazing appearance of images generated by image generation models and the amazing um, grammaticality and, you know, um, mellifluence of, you know, prose generated by language models, we are easily deceived into thinking that they actually understand what they're generating yeah. or that they, you know, they have an internal model of the world that reflects reality or that they're approaching general intelligence or something like that. When in fact, you know, there are lots of ways to sort of make these models do completely nonsensical things if you just know how to do them. And, you know, the more this stuff starts getting inside, you know, self-driving cars and so on, which already have their own issues because you can trick image, you know, image recognition systems as well. Um, I'm a little bit worried about our collective, collectively being deceived into thinking that these you know, these pieces of technology are doing are capable of more than they really are. And uh, therefore of us depending on them to do more things. Um, and uh, or, uh, you know, so I think in the future, we're going to need to get better at sort of distinguishing, you know, true understanding from just, you know, transforming something that, you know, we read on Wikipedia into something that sounds pretty good, you know, yeah. and convincing people that, you know, that it's that it's really smart. It's really a truth bias issue, right? We tend to, if it sounds, if it sounds legitimate, we tend to assume it's true, and um, yeah. it takes a lot more effort to counter it if it sounds, you know, if it's written better yeah. than you know a student would write it, for example. Yeah, and lang language models, uh, language models know implicitly one of the most important things, which is that if you state things with confidence, you'll be much more, you know, accepted than if you don't. So, I have yet to see, you know, the the language model that says. I'm not really too sure about this, but here are some possible answers. Like they just don't seem to respond that way. I mean, maybe you could prompt engineer them to do something like that, but that's not the default mode of interaction, right. right? Like they will confidently tell you complete falsehoods, you know, and you have no way just using, you know, unless you're already an expert of knowing that you're being fed complete falsehoods. Right. Right. Okay. So closing out, I got to ask you guys. Um, okay. First off the checklist manifesto by Atul Gawande. It's one of, I really love the book and it makes you look at things you're missing. I think. Yeah. It, make, it makes you check, check off things that you know, you have to do. And the real challenge for that, of course, is coming up with all of the things to put on the checklist in the first place. So if you know what, if you already know what to look for, you're part of the way there. And then you can, it, this is kind of, you've got the possibility grid in front of you and you know that you need to fill it in. That that's the first step. Yeah. 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 Have you guys heard of the book Anansi's Gold? Mm -hmm. I haven't read yeah. it yet. I've got it sitting on my shelf. I, yeah. I just oh, started it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I didn't know you had it, Dan. Okay, so I've heard yeah. of it. I didn't actually get it because I've got like 10 others that I need to read yeah. you know, be, before that one. But yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, endless stories of like clever, you know, amazing frauds and, and yeah. so on. And, you know, one 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 point we make in the book is that you you can learn a lot of interesting stuff from like any one story of a fraud, even a really complex one like Bernie Madoff or Theranos or whatever. But um, those books rarely sort of like ex rarely tell you like what you could have done beforehand to notice that this was happening. Right. right. So that's really kind of what we tried to do in our book is we have references to all kinds of frauds and deceptions and things like that. But um, only sort of mainly from the point of view of like, what did this teach us about why it worked and what we could do about it? 
Yeah, is that that's the danger, right? We can watch frauds, and when you're watching a movie about a fraud or reading a book about a, a fraudster, you know that there's a fraud involved. And you know that they're a fraudster. So you can see all the red flags. And the books are, of course, featuring those because it makes great storytelling. But you don't necessarily come away from it learning what you need to do to, to prevent it yourself in the critical cases. right? So that, that was kind of our goal was not to sort of do a profile of a fraudster, but more what's common across all of these. And that way, if you read enough of them and you start kind of seeing the similarities, maybe you'll spot some of those similarities when something new comes across and you're you're struck with it. Yeah, I mean, just more and more knowledge. So do you guys have, each of you, do you have a favorite, besides your own book, movie and or book that you like about fraud? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I have something, something just popped into my head like before. I, I mean, it's entertainment, you know, but I really enjoyed and so much. I watched it twice. The series they made about the Theranos um, case where um, Amanda Seyfried was playing um, Elizabeth Holmes. It's it's true enough. It's very close to reality, you know, in a lot of cases, or at least reality as we understand it from all the investigations that have been done and, you know, and, and so on. Um, and just wonderfully done. I'm not sure like how much you could learn about not being defrauded from it, but I think it's it's a great yeah. documentary in this in this genre. And there's there's so many other yeah, good so ones. Great ones. Um, let me think yeah. about the book one, like while Dan yeah. gives, you know, while Dan just, gives his answer. Yeah. The book one is hard. I I I was a big fan of the podcast The French Deception, which talks about Gilbert Chicli, which yeah. that was just an amazing story. Um yeah. and it's it's a it's you know a, an amazing con artist fraudster case that for whatever reason, has not had a huge visibility in the United States, even though it's really just a wonderful, amazing story. Um, it's got all the elements. So I, I really enjoyed that one. Um, but again, it's, it's like th these are endlessly entertaining and they're almost an infinite number of these sorts of great movies and stories and books um, that any one of which, any one of these cases could become its own story. And that's that's the real challenge in this sort of industry is figuring out what's underlying this that's common. Did you guys watch Lupin? I haven't. I, I watched like the first two episodes of that. I mean, it's, it's as far as I understand, it's based on like a very old sort of like French series of, of novels. Um, and uh, yes, the, uh, I, I, the, the first couple of episodes were good. Do you recommend the rest of it? Oh, highly recommend it. Okay. Highly, highly. His disguises and mannerisms and every and he he plays off of everyone's. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend Lupin for both you guys. All right. Well, I thought of a book, which is this book called Provenance, um, yeah. which is a, a story of art fraud. Um, and one of the interesting things about this story is that the, it wasn't just a guy painting pictures and passing them off as as, you know, famous ones. It was two guys who were in it together, although not entirely happy partners, I think. Um, and the, the extra step they took was not only did they create these these um, forged paintings, but they then forged documentation about the history of the painting and its ownership and put that documentation into like the British National Gallery and other official sources where you'd go. So they went to a lot of trouble to sort of, you know, prefabricate answers to questions that question askers might have. Um, right. And so uh, it, it's a great story all by itself, even if you don't think of it through that lens. But it really illustrates the need to sort of dig deeper Um and, uh, you know, they were so good at it that I think only maybe half of their forgeries have even been yeah, recovered ever. I think a lot of them will never be figured yeah. out um, uh, at all. Yeah, I love that one, too. And I think one of the nice points that one illustrates is 
that when you're thinking about what are the what are your risks of being deceived, you know, most of the time, none of us are going to be a victim of a grand con or a big scheme. We're not going to fall prey to something that takes our, our life savings. It's just relatively uncommon. Um, but when you're in one of those situations, it pays to think, if I were scamming me right now, right, how much effort would I go to for this big score? And if you're selling high value artwork, um, you don't have to sell a whole lot of that to make a lot of money. So it's going to be as a scammer in the scammer's interest to put in all of the legwork in advance and spend months doing it or years doing it in order to make that one score. And one of the things that magicians take advantage of is people wouldn't believe how much effort magicians will go to to make an effect look genuine. They'll spend months practicing something, doing it in a way that seems like nobody would go to that kind of effort. It's like, no, they'll they'll go to that kind of effort because once they've got it, you're not going to think of that as a possible option uh, for solving it. So thinking like the person who's trying to benefit from this can make a huge difference to know whether you really should spend more time asking questions, right? If you're buying high value art, yeah, you should be asking a lot of questions and looking an extra layer deep, not just at the superficial stuff, because it's in the scammer's interest to to fool you. That is a perfect way to end this episode. And like I said, I could talk to you guys for hours. Like it just, yeah, I, I, I I want to thank you so much because I, I was a little hesitant to reach out to you guys because you are ballers in the world of fraud. I mean, truly, you are ballers. I think that might be the first time I've ever been to call that. <laughs> yes. You are. Yeah. So thank you. Um, everyone go out and get the book. Okay. Everyone. I've got links and show notes and everyone get it. And thank you again. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. I, I appreciate all your kind words, especially yeah. the last ones. Oh. <laughs> 